Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power frequency radio. No, no change, change without, without struggle. struggle. No, no one, one in power, power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. We have a two-part show today. We will talk later about the latest events in Brazil. But we are starting with a new book about a fiery and influential abolitionist you may not have heard of, and perhaps that's because she was a woman. We'll talk about that for this first half of the show. With us is Lydia Moland. She is the author of Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. Lydia Moland is professor of philosophy at Colby College. Her scholarship in German philosophy, including Hegel's aesthetics, the art of idealism, has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and various other Um, institutions. Her work on Lydia Mariah Child has appeared in the Paris Review, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, and on National Public Radio. Hi, Lydia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So who was Lydia Mariah Child? I, I have to admit, I have not heard about her until I got your book. Yes, she was one of the 19th century's most ferocious abolitionists. She was born in 1802 in Medford, Massachusetts. And um, by her mid-20s, she had become a very beloved and self-sufficient female author, which was almost unheard of at that time. Um, but a couple of years after she reached essentially the height of her fame, she converted to abolitionism, which at that point was the incredibly radical claim that slavery should end immediately and without compensation to enslavers. And this was a position that was um, so radical at that time that the historian Kelly Carter Jackson, for instance, has said that it was almost like calling yourself a communist in the 1950s. Hmm. It just was it was just way out of the scope of imagination of most white Americans, even in the North. So Child essentially sacrificed her literary reputation for the cause after she came out as an abolitionist by publishing a book-length denunciation of American slavery in 1833. She was really ostracized, uh, lost her readership, lost much of her income. But she spent the next 50 years of her life uh, fighting not just slavery, but racial injustice. Um, until she died in 1880. So she lived all the way through the Civil War. She, her life intersected in fascinating and really compelling ways with major moments in the Civil War era, uh, like the caning of Charles Sumner and George, uh, sorry, uh, Robert Gould Shaw's um, death in, at the head of the Massachusetts 54th Regiment. 
um, and also of Harriet Jacobs' um, memoir of enslavement. So she had this wonderfully dynamic and fierce life committed to racial injustice. And then after she died, she was essentially forgotten. So when I discovered her, I thought it was time to try to change that. Mm-hmm. How, how was she converted? What, uh, what brought that conversion? Yeah, it's a great question. She was a very curious, sympathetic person. She had already um, become very concerned about the treatment of Native Americans in Maine, where she lived as a teenager. So she was already, let's say, primed to worry that there were major atrocities being perpetuated by her government that your average person wasn't talking about. And I think as a young person, she vaguely disapproved of slavery and thought that it was, you know, a bad thing. But then in the 1830s, she met William Lloyd Garrison, who was one of the most vocal white abolitionists in Boston at that time. And he was building on a very active black abolitionist community in Boston. And she essentially listened to their arguments and concluded that they were right and that she couldn't live her life the same way anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and it did change her life. Like you said, uh, maybe you can tell us a little more about how she was ostracized and um, what happened. And, and did she regret it? <laughs> yes. Well, what happened very quickly was that her book sales plummeted. People in the South sent her books back, but also people in the North stopped buying her novels and her children's fiction and her, and her very popular domestic help books. Um, so she lost her income that way. She lost access to the kind of great and good of Boston high society who did not like radical um, abolitionists because they rocked the boat. Um, and then... For the rest of her life, she struggled to make any sort of living whatsoever um, since she never really got her readership back. And whether she regretted that or not, I think is a complicated question. The short answer is no. She was always very clear that she was glad to have found a cause that gave her life such meaning and made it um, that made her able to engage with the most pressing issues of her time. But there's no question that it was very difficult for her. Um, she lost friends, family members didn't want to talk to her. She and her husband were allies in this fight against slavery. At one point, they moved to Northampton, Massachusetts, which is in the western part of the state, in an attempt to grow sugar beets in the hope that they could replace plantation-grown cane sugar with sugar beet-produced sugar, um, which is just another example of how they, they... radically changed their lives to try to address this evil. And that was, um, unfortunately, a total failure. They went bankrupt. And as a result of that, in part, um, they also separated. Their shared activism was so hard on their marriage that for a while they separated. Um, They did eventually reconcile and had a very happy last couple decades together. Um, he died in her arms. It's, a, it's an amazing love story. But I often think about that when people ask me about the things that she sacrificed. Um, I think one of the things that she sacrificed was an easy and happy marriage, because once they committed to this cause together, um, it put a lot of strain on their relationship. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think some of us know something about that. Yes. <laughs> so, so there's a story of uh, when the British abolitionist George Thompson spoke in uh, Boston in 1835. Uh, what happened then? Yes, yeah, so he was... Um much reviled by anti-abolitionists just generally, but especially because he was British. So there were a lot of people in the United States who thought that British abolitionists were being sent to the United States on purpose by the British government to sow dissent and to undermine American democracy. But also, there most people, um, again, were not in favor, white people were not in favor of ending slavery. So when these abolitionists speakers would get to the podium, um, often riots would start. So people would actively try to keep them from speaking by throwing bricks and throwing eggs and throwing manure, sometimes setting fire to the building. Um, There was incredible anti-abolitionist violence in the 1830s up and down the north, um, the east coast. Uh, And in that particular case, um, he was speaking and they knew that there was going to be a mob and a riot. And so the abolitionists agreed that the women would get up when he was done speaking and sort of gather around him and pretend to engage him in conversation while slowly moving him towards a back exit that he could sneak out of in the hope, which turned out to be true, that the mob wouldn't physically attack women first. And Mm -hmm. so this was a tactic that they deployed more than once um, to try to get abolitionist speakers out of lecture halls before they could be attacked. So it wasn't the only time that child put her body between an abolitionist speaker and an anti-abolitionist mob, um, but it was one of the more (laughs) um, attention-getting times After that, she and her husband also helped spirit him out of Boston, which was no longer safe for him, to a safe house in New York where they tried to hide him um, because they feared for his life. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Um, I mean, we've had several shows on on this particular show about... um, the mistaken notion that uh, racism and pro-slavery was unique to the South. Yes. Uh, but here you, um, you are showing it again. Talk about the fact that the North really um, was, I think, maybe differently racist and, and pro-slavery, but there was slavery in the North, and uh, there certainly were these sentiments. Yes. uh, Yeah. No, there was absolutely slavery in all of the original 13 colonies. And I think by the time period that we're talking about, again, your your average white northerner did not want the economy disrupted, which the end of slavery would mean, did not want politics to be disrupted. There had already been several very close calls as far as keeping the union together around the question of slavery. Uh, Many white northerners did not want to rock that boat again either. And I think Child was especially good at calling out northern racism. So the last chapter in the book that she published in 1833 um, was a direct attack on northern racism in which she said in no uncertain terms, southern slavery would not survive 
if it weren't supported by racism in the North. And then she recounted all of these anecdotes about Black people being um, barred from, from public transportation and schools and churches and any number of different parts of, um, of just life. <laughs> and again, said that if it weren't for the fact that the North supported this kind of prejudice, the South wouldn't be able to continue enslavement. And I think there's been really good writing, especially recently, about the kind of racism that pervaded the abolitionist movement itself. Because I think it's important for us to realize that even those people who thought that slavery should end did not think that Black people should be enslaved. That did not imply in their minds that Black people were their equals. And so they were perfectly happy for slavery to end. They wanted slavery to end, but they did not want black people in their churches or their schools. And there were mobs that burned down schools for black children. And there were white parishioners who kicked black parishioners out of their pews. Um, And and so Carrie Greenwich has just written a really wonderful book about the Grimke sisters who were abolitionists, you know, and courageous, pathbreaking abolitionists but who nevertheless um, themselves showed real paternalism and condescension to black people. Um, And there's another wonderful new book um, by Linda Hirschman about racism among white abolitionists. So I think this is a really important legacy of racism in the North that those of us who live here need to reckon with in much more explicit ways. Yeah. And and, um, I've, I think the legacy continues. Wisconsin, for example, where we are, um, is in constant competition with Mississippi and or Louisiana for the most black people per capita that we incarcerate here. Mm. And here we are in the north. Yes. Um, So anyway, um, so what you were just talking about uh, goes into... um, what happened to Child in 1841? She took up the editorship of the New York City-based National Anti-Slavery Standard. And as I understand, she did well for a while. And then these uh, disagreements within the anti-abolitionist um, movement uh, caused a lot of trouble. So talk about that, please. Yes. So this is a a classic case of a progressive movement splintering. So she she was in New York editing this weekly journal, the National Anti-Slavery Standard. She was one of the she was the first woman to edit something like that in the country. But there were these different factions. There were factions who thought that politics should absolutely be avoided in the pursuit of abolition. There were people who thought that emancipation would only happen through politics. There were people who thought that women should be involved. There were people who thought that they shouldn't. There were people who thought that violence was necessary to end slavery. There were people who thought violence was never justified. So she was trying to bring these different viewpoints together into a newspaper that people could read to get informed and express their own opinions. And ultimately, um, the infighting was so poisonous that she felt like she couldn't continue. And also some of her more strident allies who really wanted to hold people to a very narrow definition of what it meant to be an abolitionist sort of forced her out because she wanted to be conciliatory insofar as she wanted everyone to feel like there was a place in the abolitionist movement for them. And some of her allies felt like if people didn't embrace the kind of abolitionism that they embraced, 
those people had to be defined as enemies. And I think that's a kind of dynamic that we see all the way through politics today as well, that even people who you would think would be on the right side, uh, the same side rather, and the right side in this case, um, end up having kind of litmus tests that people who fail get eject ejected because of that. So she definitely got caught up in some very um, nasty infighting there. And it, in her case, it was so wounding that she did retreat from explicit abolitionist organizations um, for about 10 years. And it was a real period of burnout and depression and isolation for her until she really re-engaged um, especially after John Brown's raid in 1859, and then was just on fire and, and deeply engaged all the way through the Civil War and all the way through Re Reconstruction as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I was thinking about what you were um, saying, that um, I think that part of what is allowing the right wing and, and you know, fascist movements in this country and, and elsewhere to flourish nowadays is the fact that the left is not able to ever coalesce into one strong movement. We are so busy infighting and yes. um, testing each other's... Um, I mean, I participated in it too. I, I, you know, <laughs> I'm just older now and I think wiser in that sense. But yeah, anything you yeah. want to say to that? Well, just that I think it's always important when we look back on things like that to realize that the abolitionist enemies had every interest in promoting these divisions, right? So it wasn't just infighting. It was also that there were these pressures outside of the abolitionist movement that were trying to get them to fight with each other. Hmm. So it wasn't just that they were petty or egoistic. There was some of that as well. But I think it was much more that there were people who had a real vested interest in making sure that they did not get along, who stoked those kinds of divisions among them. Yeah, and we seem to be really good at um, <laughs> going for it. Anyway, we do have a caller for you if other people want to call. We have very few more minutes left, but it is 608-256-2001. Um, Steve, you're on the air with Lydia Moland. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Esty and Lydia. Um, I hate to be the monkey wrench in the fine machine of sheer programming, but didn't Child author a quasi-anti-feminist tract titled The Frugal Housewife in the 1820s? And uh, that's it. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Steve. Lydia. Yes, she she did write that. I wouldn't call it an anti-feminist tract, though. It was a kind of self-help book. It was, um, there were recipes, there were um, ideas about how to cure dysentery or get rid of bed bugs or deal with a sprained ankle or cook a goose. And it definitely addressed women as primary homemakers and as the people who were responsible for those things. So I guess insofar as um, it thought of women or de depicted women in that way, that would be true. Um, but I think it's, it's much more a political document insofar as she also talked about how if Americans really wanted to be self-sufficient and not just replicate the aristocracy that they had just tried to defeat in the Revolutionary War, 
they needed to be um, self-reliant and they needed to know how to do these things for themselves. And she did go, she had some sort of ambivalent attitudes towards women's rights early in her life. She was much more interested in fighting for the rights of enslaved people than she was in fighting for her own rights. But by the end of her life, she was a full out supporter of women's suffrage um, and articulated beautiful and very um, searing arguments against the people who were trying to keep women in the domestic sphere. So thank you for the question. But um, in the end, I think I, I wouldn't call that an anti-feminist tract. Yeah, though, um, Steve, I'm impressed that you have heard about yes. um, Lydia Mariah Child. So um All power Indeed. to you for that. Um, so um, you mentioned um, John Brown and his failed uprising in Harper's Ferry. Two things about that. Um, first of all, she uh, publicly offered to visit him in prison and dress his wounds, which, again, that w- that's very uh, gutsy, and I wonder how it was received. And also, like I mentioned at the beginning of the hour, I know about John Brown. I think everybody I know knows about James Brown, but I have never heard about Lydia Mariah Child. So why is that? Yeah, yeah, this is one of my favorite stories about her, actually, and I'll try to tell it really quickly. But yes, after she offered to go and nurse him in the prison where he ended up after his failed raid, um, she, she wrote to the governor of Virginia asking for permission to do that. He wrote back and kind of scolded her for her abolitionism. And then he published her letter in the newspaper without her permission. Hmm. So she wrote a screed back at him, published that in the newspaper as well. That caused another woman to write a letter. Child responded to that. In the end, she had this incredible set of documents that um, were Southerners' objections to her and her arguments against them that she then published as a very successful tract um, that sold like 300,000 copies and was very influential in getting the North ready to fight the war that was just around the corner. Mm-hmm. But as to you know why we know about John Brown and we don't know about Lydia Mariah Child, I think one obvious answer is just that Brown had such, um, the, his use of violence is so attention getting. And I think we often tend to pay more attention to physical violence over the kinds of arguments that child preferred as a way of fighting um, slavery. But I also think that by the end of her life, she was still trying to convince Americans that racial justice had not been achieved. So people would say to her at the end of her life, aren't you glad to have lived long enough to see justice done to black people? And she would say, I hope I do live long enough to see justice done to black people because it has not happened yet. And that is not what white people wanted to hear. They wanted just to be told that they had done a good job winning the war, getting rid of slavery. And I think she felt that as a kind of failure that meant that at the end of her life, she was not trying to promote herself as a hero. She was not accepting other people's attempts to mm. portray her as a hero. And in part for that reason, um, when she died, she faded pretty quickly from our consciousness. Huh, that's interesting. Okay, so it's her humbleness rather than, or, you know, in addition to societal Definitely norms. Definitely in addition to, yeah. yeah. There's no question that male abolitionists got more attention than she did pretty much her entire life. Yeah. Well, and she she was still charitable upon her death. She left them. Um, t- t- talk about that, please. 
Yes, so she had always lived um, as if she were completely impoverished. And for much of her life, I think she was. Um, but she refused to buy new bonnets. She refused to move to Boston to be near her friends after her husband died, all because she said she didn't want to spend money. And it turned out when she died that that's because she'd been saving it um, so that she ended up giving the equivalent in today's dollars of about three quarters of a million dollars to the causes that she loved the most. So causes for black education and black women and also impoverished white women, um, education. Also um, animal welfare was one of the things she cared about a lot in mm. her, later in her life. So she lived a kind of um, frugality, back to your caller's question, the frugal housewife um, in a way that allowed her then at the end of her life to continue beyond her life to promote the causes that she cared most about. Okay, so one last question, which is an important question in your book. What can we learn from her example? Because you yourself um, ask in the book, what can you learn from her? Yes. Yeah, well, so much. I think I'll mention just two things. One is one thing I really admire about her is she had a kind of fierce humility. She knew that as a white woman, she was part of the problem. She knew that Um, she had benefited from a system that was oppressing others, and she was determined to keep fighting that. Um, and the other thing is, reading child has given me a kind of moral paranoia, by which I mean that I'm always aware that if people like her could grow up missing something that was so obviously an evil and an atrocity, namely slavery, what am I missing? And I think you mentioned uh, mass incarceration earlier. And to me, that is one of the things that it's all too easy for people like me to ignore. And it is unfortunately something that is inherited and, and continued many of the evils of slavery. And I think that it's something that many people like myself need to think much harder about um, and learn more about its connection to slavery and the ways in which it perpetuates racial injustice now. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lydia Morland, Professor of Philosophy at uh, Colby College and uh, writer of this new book titled Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. Thanks for the book and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. And uh, we are going to transfer right away to Brazil. With us is James N. Green, Carlos Manuel de Cespedes, Professor of Modern Latin American History in Brown University and President of the Board of Directors at the Washington Brazil Office. Thank you, uh, James, for joining us. You are in Brazil, I take it. Oop, wait a minute. We can't hear you. Um, what's going I'm on? In, I'm in Rio at the Here moment. Here you are. You are in Rio. Yeah. Okay, and did you go because of these latest events, or were you there already? No, I was, there. I was in Brazil this last year following the elections and working on a book project and uh, came back to Brazil for the inauguration on January 1st and then was in Rio when the uh, invasion of the... Um, of the Congress, the Presidential Palace, and the Supreme Court took place last Sunday. Aha, uh-huh, okay. So what is um, the latest? What, what more do we know about the uh, Bolsonarista riot? 
So just really quick background. Uh, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who was president for two terms, was reelected with 51% of the votes on October 30th. And his opponent, the uh, incumbent president, Jair Bolsonaro, had prepared the, uh, the, 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 the situation by claiming that the elections would be likely fraudulent, that the electoral, electronic voting uh, machines were not uh, reliable. And uh, after the elections, his supporters blocked highways for two or three days and then moved to camp out in front of all the military barracks and headquarters around the country, calling on, on the military to intervene and overthrow the Lula government. Um, Lula was inaugurated very beautifully and successfully on the 1st of January. Bolsonaro had left the country, was in Orlando, Florida. He left on the 30th of December, so he wouldn't pass on the presidential sash to, to, uh, to Lula, which is the tradition. Uh, and then uh, this last Sunday, his supporters um, stormed the presidential palace, the congressional um, building, and the, uh, the site of the Supreme Court. And so the, the reaction has been really a strong condemnation of what has been done. Um, the violence really, uh, really, I think, turned off a sector of Bolsonaro supporters. And uh, just yesterday, a document was found um, in the helm of the, um, uh, the former minister of justice under the Bolsonaro government, who was then made the um, uh, person in charge of security for the federal district of Brasilia, indicating that Bolsonaro was intending to try to uh, seize power uh, and uh, tr to challenge the election results. Um, didn't do it, but he was thinking about that as a possibility. Mm -hmm. And it all is so familiar, right? Um, right? So what do we know? Are there U.S. connections or um, is it... Um, is it just um, you know learning from the American playbook? Or, so there's uh, there's two elements on here. First of all, Bolsonaro, who was quickly dubbed the uh, Trump of the tropics by journalists when he was elected in 2018, um, has tended to follow very closely the Trump playbook, from denying uh, the seriousness of COVID-19 to uh, not taking seriously the vaccine vaccination campaign to pr promoting hydrochloroquine and other fake remedies um, to, to doing many other things which are along the lines of what the Trump uh, program has been and what part of the international far-right program has been. Um, what was alarming is that this has never happened in, in Brazil and it's a very, very serious uh, attack on, on democratic rule. Brazil had a dictatorship from 1964 to 1985 uh, in which there was gross violation of human rights. It was a very bad time for the country. And Bolsonaro has never hidden his admiration for the dictatorship and, in fact, the right of, of the state to torture its opponents. He's actually defended torturers in the past. Um, what, what this has done, though, I think, is to weaken his movement and strengthen the, the new government of Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. Mm -hmm. Well, um, so during that military dictatorship, um, the U.S. was very involved, um, and um, a lot of these uh, military folks were trained at the School of the Americas here in the United States. And I, I just wonder to what degree 
the American right wing is still involved. I know that uh, Steve Bannon participated in a November meeting in Mexico of uh, high-level international right wing leaders, including Bolsonaro's son, uh, which was hosted by the American Conservative Political Action Conference. Is there, is there any information or is it all still just, um, you know... Um, Speculation. Speculation. Yeah. Thank you. So yes. there's two elements here. First, let me just go back to a very important point you made, which is that the United States government did, in fact, support, plotted with the military to overthrow the democratically elected government in 1964 of Jean Goulart and supported the military uh, for most of its time in power. However, what's very different is that the Biden administration since 2021 has left a very clear message that it believes in Brazilian democracy and the electoral process and very much um, wanted to support that and sent a very clear message to the Brazilian armed forces that should they try to seize power, the U.S. would cut off or seriously sanction Brazil. And I think this is what prevented the military actually from, after Bolsonaro lost the elections, uh, trying to seize power, because they realized that this would cause a tremendous break with the United States, which is the main supplier of arms and training, as you've mentioned. So on one level, the military has been held back by um, what I consider a very good policy of the Biden administration, strengthened by resolutions in Congress. The, Bernie Sanders introduced a, a unanimous consent resolution in the Senate just before the elections, calling for um, a break of aid and support should the military try to seize power. And uh, there have been other articulations by the U.S. Congress, by Congress people supporting democracy in Brazil both before the end of the elections, after the elections, and then after the invasion on Sunday. Now, as to the involvement of the far right uh, and those supporting Donald Trump, it's clear that there is a deep, close connection. Eduardo Bolsonaro was in Washington the day before and that's the January son. 6th invasion. His son, who was a state legislator in the state of Sao Paulo. Bolsonaro has three sons. One is a city council one, a member in Rio. Another is a, a federal uh, senator in Rio. And the third is a state assembly legislator in Sao Paulo. And he, Eduardo, the son, has very close connections with Steve Bannon, with Jason, um, Jason Miller, who, um, who also met uh, with Bolsonaro and, and, and others in Florida, in Orlando in the last week. Um, the, the, the secretary of security, who had this document in his house, um, was also left early on vacation, so was not in the Brasilia to, to oversee the security measures Uh, on the 8th of, of January. Um, it's very highly likely that they've all been engaged in, in, in common planning, just as after the invasion of the Capitol on January 6th, at first it wasn't fully clear to what extent uh, Donald Trump had been involved in the planning and the execution of, of the idea of invading the Capitol to overturn the elections. But clearly now I think the, the hearings, the January 6th hearings have made that very clear, that connection. And I think that the same situation will be happening in Brazil. The Senate of Brazil has called, collected enough signatures to have an investigative uh, panel that will be investigating um, the events of January 8th, uh, 2023, uh, when the Congress comes back into session in, Febu in February. Mm -hmm. So there, um, there's going to be an investigation, and I think part of the investigation, and part of, excuse me, but there's a, a very important letter was issued by uh, several dozen Congress uh, Represented, congressional representatives yesterday from the United States calling on the U.S. government to look into any ways in which Bolsonaro might have been involved in a coup plotting from, from Florida.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another um, similarity is um, the Trump family seems to be involved in all kinds of corruption. And in fact, the organization was uh, just fined uh, $1.6 million for um, tax evasion. And the Bolsonaro family, likewise, is also looking at all kinds of corruption uh, charges, correct? That's absolutely correct. One example is over 51, uh, the family of Bolsonaro uh, made 51 real estate purchases over the last years, all of them in cash. And we're talking about multi-million dollar buildings that they somehow had all the cash for and they didn't write a check or take out a bank loan, but deliver the, 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 the payment in suitcases and uh, just tremendous speculation. This is money that was laundered. The, basically, the attorney general of Brazil, who was an appointment of the last government, um, has really refused to take seriously most of the uh, kind of allegations against the Bolsonaro family, has, has dropped many of the alleged charges and, and chosen not to, to prosecute. Um, but there are multiple uh, accusations of corruptions by the sons and by the father. And while the sons, as members of, of the, the parliamentary system in Brazil, have immunity while they're in an office, Bolsonaro lost his immunity in, on January 1st, 2023, and in fact could be arrested and charged with conspiracy to uh, overthrow the government. Mm-hmm. And... Um... So, so of course, democratic um, legislators are, are as calling for that. Um, what's the chance that something like that would happen? Do you think? Well, I mean, they're actually asking for two things. One, they're asking for the State Department to expel Bolsonaro, and he came to the country most likely on a, a diplomatic visa, which would have expired on January first, when he no longer was uh, the president of the country or in any way representing the state. Um, would, he would have 30 days to apply for a tourist visa. And I think that the State Department's position, without commenting on this specific case, but speaking in general terms, is that if there are no criminal charges against Bolsonaro, it's not likely that they'll be able to deport him, even though this has been the call of Congress people. Um, on the other hand, um, it could be that soon there are, in fact, criminal charges against him, and he might, he might be deported or he might choose to come back to Brazil um, on his own. We'll have to see. Mm-hmm. My guest from Rio de Janeiro in Brazil is James N. Green, Carlos Manuel de Cespedes, Professor of Modern Latin American History at Brown University and President of the Board of Directors of the Washington Brazil Office. If you'd like to join the conversation, you don't have a whole lot of time, 608-256-2001 or on social media at World Talk on Twitter or a public affair on Facebook. So uh, let's get back, James, to what is going on and what was going on. Um, are more riots expected? Well, immediately after the invasion of, the, of the, these three branches of the government, um, a member of the Supreme Court who also was in charge of the Federal Electoral Commission ordered that all of the uh, campsites of the Bolsonaro supporters in front of, of military installations throughout the country be immediately um, dispersed. And at the same time, they started uh, the process of, of uh, identifying and arresting people who were involved in the invasion. I mean, much like in the United States, people were foolish enough to take selfies and to, and to put on their Facebook or transmit 
um, filmage of, of, of their doing committing crimes. And so it, there are already several hundred people who are under indictment or will be soon under indictment for having uh, left evidence of their involvement in this criminal action. Um, there are several thousand people now uh, being investigated. I'm expecting swift prosecution of those people. But the big question is who financed this? 100 buses were, 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 uh, were contracted to bring people to Brasilia. Um, people who were camping out, maybe more than 1,000 people were camped out with, with flush toilets and food and all camping equipment. So clearly there were political forces that were, were bankrolling um, these efforts around the country to build the momentum for a coup. And the uh, Supreme Court is very much committed to finding out who was involved in financing this um, and and taking them to justice, which could include um, sus taking away the right for Bolsonaro to be a candidate for president in the future, because the Federal Election Commission has a lot of power to do that. Mm -hmm. I uh, looked at photos of the people who were getting arrested and... Um to me, um, they look very much like normal people, you know, they, they don't look to me like the rich people who obviously support Bolsonaro. But that is, again, true about Trump, too, right? People who um, are not necessarily rich, people who um, are, in fact, um, being injured by the kind of politics that he was implementing are some of his biggest supporters. So I was wondering about that. Who supports Bolsonaro and why? So there's a broad range of reasons for that. One is a hardcore of far-right uh, people who uh, are very much against the policies of the Workers' Party and the left, which was, has been in power for four, was in power for 14 years until President Jim Hussefi was impeached in 2016, were very resentful for the ways in which affirmative action programs or uh, equal rights for maids um, were implemented under the Lula Juma governments. And it's kind of a, a politics of resentment and, and very similar to the way in which many white people in the United States feel threatened by all the changes that have taken place in the United States over the last 60 years for equality, for equal rights, for civil rights. Uh, that's one base of support. Uh, another base of support is members of the armed forces and the, and the militarized police and the police forces and their relatives and their family and their wives. And a third is evangelical Christians, which there's a large, strong base of uh, uh, conservative Christians who and conservative Catholics who support the Bolsonaro because he has a very strong anti-LGBTQ rights movement uh, against feminism, against the right to abortion, um, against uh, affirmative action programs. And so this mobilizes um, a large sector. Now, I was looking at a picture of 100 people who have been arrested, and, and in my reading, um, the phenotypes, the, the physical looking of people in Brazil, they all reminded me of upper middle class or middle class people, mostly white, um, mm. although Bolsonaro does have a, a base of support among Afro-descendants who are um, involved in Christian movements, um, conservative con Christian movements. Um, and then Bolsonaro did get significant support by sectors of the entrepreneurial class, uh, in, in, in his election, uh, although many of them realized in supporting him they had opened a Pandora's box and things have gotten out of control. So the mainstream newspapers, who are generally very conservative and tend to support center or right candidates, um, moved into opposition to Bolsonaro and were pretty vocal against him and ultimately 
uh, de facto supporting Lula's candidacy and his presidency um, because Bolsonaro just went so far. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, back to the riots. Um, a presidential spokesman told Reuters that computers were taken from the National Security Advisor's office and hard drives containing confidential information had disappeared. Boxes of taser guns were emptied. Um, especially that um, situation with um, hard drive containing presidential information Again, you think about the people who um, who basically made these riots possible, and I assume who will get these things. How concerned uh, are you about that? Well, it's what is really ironic is that these people address themselves in the Brazilian flag in a, in a discourse of patriotism and, and loving the Brazilian state and singing the national anthem, but yet in a lot of ways they clearly don't believe in democracy or or the, the ideas of the re- founding of the Republic in 1889. Brazil was an empire in the 19th century and only abolished slavery in 1888. But in 1889, they established a, a, a republic. It separated church and state and established a series of democratic principles that these, these rioters clearly don't support. Um, what they'll do with this information is hard to know. Um, I think some of it could have just been people vandalizing and grabbing a computer or grabbing other things that might get into the hands of people who might use them for negative or nefarious reasons. Uh, the other thing that happened, which was so shocking to Brazilians, is that the Brazilian capital was, was constructed between 55 and 60. It was a modernist structure. It's really the pride of the country. It has very unusual buildings and design. And to see it being ransacked by uh, people who were wearing the Brazilian flag was just shocking to people, um, just as when we hear hang Mike Pence from the invaders of the capital, we have to we shudder because it's just so against kind of basic core values of the United States. And so there has been, I think, a strong distancing of many far right, uh, some far right uh, forces uh, to, to what had happened. It's not clear, clear how long they will remain um, kind of criticizing what Bolsonaro has done. And it's not clear whether when Bolsonaro come back, comes back to the country, whether, whether he will try to mobilize his base of support or um, kind of withdrawal, fearful of being convicted of a crime. He really does not want to be in prison, and he said that pretty obviously, and so I think he'll do everything to prevent that, which might include denying that he's been involved in any way with anything supporting the, the, the invasion of, of, the, of the buildings and, in fact, um, will claim to be a Democrat. We'll see what happens on that. And, of course, as in the United States, it's no easy task um, to think about imprisoning a former president This happened to Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who was in prison for 580 days. Um, But he was very much tarnished. His image was very much tarnished by the mainstream press over many years, which kind of allowed that to happen. Um, So it's possible that they could do the same to Bolsonaro, imprison Mm -hmm. him for crimes uh, of treason, actually. Yeah, yeah, you said that um, these are people who um, claim and, and, you know, represent love to Brazil, but... uh, um, apparently don't love the Brazil that supports all of its people. Um, it's interesting that Bolsonaristas called it the Brazilian Spring, which um, seems to be very 1984-ish. Um, can you explain that? Well, I mean, I think everything about Bolsonaro... I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I was at the investiture ceremony of, of the new Minister of Foreign Relations, Mauro Vieira, a friend. And the former Minister of Foreign Relations 
gave a speech before they passed the, the baton, which was very bizarre. He was only one of two ministers who actually stayed for the inaugural ceremonies of the ministers of the new government. The rest of them refused to show up. But then he went into a long defense about the great things that the Bolsonaro government had done, including combating COVID-19, uh, defending <sighs> the environment and the Amazon, and carrying out a very good economic policies. And all, all, it was, you know, I was in a, a meeting of mainly diplomats, and so they know not to, to show their cards and to put frowns on their face, but clearly <laughs> everyone was very uncomfortable. When he finished, 10 people stood up and gave him a round of applause. I assume they were his aides. And then when the minister, the new minister, gave his really thorough speech about the goals of the new government, he got a standing ovation and, and was a very warm one, partially because all entities in the Brazilian government have been exhausted for four years of the destruction that Bolsonaro has done to the instruments of government, leaving uh, ministries absolutely bankrupt with no money in the budget for their, their operations for next year. Um, huge amounts of money we cannot account for, the, for it at this moment. They're trying to figure out where it went. Um, it's going to be a very difficult time for the new left-wing government of Luis Inácio da Silva to manage to uh, carry out the changes and the transformations he wants to carry out, given the way Bolsonaro has left the, 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 the government in such a, a bad state. So there'll be many challenges for, for Brazil in the next four years, including finding a way to deter the attempts or the threats of a coup d'etat and, and carrying out a very, very ambitious plan to improve the economy, to anger and hunger again, and to uh, reinitiate many of the progressive programs that were started under his original uh, ter terms in office. Yeah, so I, I did want to ask you about uh, the possibility of having a coup d'etat. Um, we know, I mean, Lula has said on Thursday that security force members were complicit in letting an anti-government mob ransack the seat of power in Brasilia. Um, he actually promised to weed out hardcore supporters of his predecessor, which... One wonders exactly how how you do that and what happens when when it succeeds to whatever degree, right? Because these people, they will be let out of the armed forces, but they won't stop their um, plotting and they do have military training. Just how dangerous are the current police and army and do you think they might try a coup d'etat and if so what might happen so i think to be very honest the two main breaks the main protections against a coup d'etat right now are a position of the biden administration stating clearly that it would not support it and the international community writ large and so there's going to be an isolation of the government if that happens and the military i think is aware of that i think this is why they've really kind of held back so far uh, but it could happen. I mean, there's a, there, there were nine coup attempts in, since 1889, four of which were successful, one of which led to a, a dictatorship um, of seven years, and another one led to a dictatorship of 21 years. So it's still possible that the military could come to power again. Um, I think there are these restraints on them. And there's also a strong mobilized civil society uh, and sectors that are generally conservative of the media and of the, of the market um, are much more cautious about throwing uh, Lula under the, under the bus. They, they realized that he uh, could bring unity to the country and to kind of overcome the, this crisis. And I can't emphasize how much, how much this invasion just shocked uh, middle-class people who just had never seen anything like this before. So I think it really 
undercut uh, all the plans that the military and the Bolsonaro people were were were, were imagining. Now, I you know it's very dangerous to predict the future in Brazil because things can change on a dime. Uh, but I think it's less likely than more likely that a successful coup will take place. Although those of us who are working in defense of democracy in Brazil, including the Washington Brazil office, are extremely concerned about this and are going to continue to remain kind of mobilized and attentive to the situation to guarantee that, in fact, the military is not successful in overthrowing a democratically elected government. Mm-hmm. So, um, last question. Uh, we've been talking about the connections between the U.S. Um, hard right and the Brazilian one. And uh, one wonders what Bolsonaro is doing in Florida, of all places. I was just there and... Um, you know, it, it's like the air is seething with uh, right-wing thinking and, and actions in Florida. And, um, you know, one wonders uh, who he's meeting and, and what they might be plotting. But, of course, the United States and Brazil are just part of a growing uh, fascistic movement throughout the world. Um, what are your thoughts about that before we say goodbye? No, it's a very serious question, and it's one that we, as an organization working on Brazil, are very much concerned in building connections with people, democratic forces around the world who are fighting against authoritarian regimes. My partner is, my husband is Israeli and a professor at Hebrew University, and I'm very much following the situation in Israel with the far-right government of Benjamin Netanyahu causing a huge crisis in that country. Yeah. We look at Hungary, we look at the Philippines, we look at Russia, we look at Turkey, We look at Poland, and these are all very serious threats to worldwide democracy. I, I really feel we're in 1932. The world is upside down. We have this movement of fascists that has developed. We don't really know what their end game is going to be. It's hard to predict that, but we know it's not good. And so I think one of the things that Lula did, and this is my final message, he built a 10-party coalition that managed to unite sectors that were divided historically, including appointing for his vice president, a person who would run against him and the Workers' Party twice for president, and building that democratic front to stop fascism uh, in its, all of its manifestations that, you know, that we're facing uh, yeah. in the 21st century. It's yeah. very, very serious. And I'm sorry, James, uh, we have to end here. Say shalom to your husband for me, please. Uh, James N. Green, Carlos Manuel de Cespedes, professor of modern Latin American history at Brown University, president of the board of directors of the Washington Brazil office. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we'll keep talking about that and about fascism in our current world. Thank you, James. Bye-bye. Thanks to Nate and Jade. I'm STD North. Bye-bye.